you for that one, Jeanette, and thank you, Sue, for choosing that. <laughs> um, interesting passage. When I first read it, I thought, good, read what on earth all this about. But take heart, don't despair, because there is good news in here, really, and we'll try and unpack that a bit in a minute. But I do want to start with a note of hope. I want to ask, what kind of legacy would you like to leave? What are you going to do with your country estates and your yacht in the Med and your millions? <laughs> no, no, no I, I, I haven't got those either. Uh, no, I mean, the sort of legacy uh, where we all leave ripples, don't we, that kind of spread out into the world around us. We probably don't realise most of them, but um, ripples that spread down the generations as well. Um, we affect the world that we live in. That's the kind of legacy that I'm thinking of. What kind of legacy do you hope to leave? Eli, guy in the story there, in that reading, he left a very mixed legacy, some good, some bad, and what we heard about there was the, the really bad stuff. God was really very angry at that point, and things had gone seriously off the rails. We'll think about that in a minute. But this happens in the middle of the story of Samuel, and you'll perhaps be more familiar with the story of Samuel who listened to God. Eli was entrusted with Samuel's upbringing, and it seems he did a much better job with Samuel than he did with his own two sons. At the end of the day, Eli's legacy was not all bad, not all good, but it wasn't all bad. It was very mixed, and I guess that's perhaps true for many of us. I certainly take great comfort from the thought that comes out of this story as a whole, the story of Eli. I take comfort in the thought that we're reminded that our God is the God of the second chance. We're not just thinking about Hoffman and Phinehas and all the bad stuff this morning. We're also going to remember Samuel and how well Eli brought up Samuel. So our God is the God of the second chance. And I wanted to say that right at the start this morning, so you're not completely uh, depressed and, and overwhelmed by the reading that we've just had. So hold on to that thought while we just try and unpack that reading a little bit. We can only understand what's going on and why God is so angry if we understand a bit about the cultural context in which it all happened um, and then the story that it's part of. So very quickly, the context is God's people have been slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. They've come out of slavery, long years of um, being nomads in the desert, and now they've come into a life of being settled farmers. So they've had a lot of change, a lot of cultural change, really, over the years as, they, as they've travelled on. They're now in the Promised Land, they're farmers. There's no king yet, but it's a kind of loose confederation of tribes. They were governed by a series of judges rather than, than having a king. So a series of judges of whom Eli was the second to last but one. And he was also the priest. There's no stone-built temple yet. They have a tent of meeting like Moses had in the desert when he used to go into the tent of meeting and meet with God face to face as a man meets with his friend. That's what they had. And that tent of meeting was set up in the north of the country in a place called Shiloh. 
that's where people brought their offerings, their sacrificial offerings, and there was a, a priest there to enable that, and that's where they came to worship God. They were surrounded by very, very different cultures and religious practices. The other nations all around them worshipped fertility gods, and they had um, rituals that were, were seemed to have been designed to manipulate the gods, to give them a good harvest. There was no sense of relationship with God. There were lots of gods, and their rituals were meant to give them a good harvest. It included having temple prostitutes, and we'll come back to that a little bit later on, because that is mentioned a bit earlier in the chapter that we read from. So that's the, um, the cultural um, surroundings, that's the, the basic context in which all this is happening. The story in which it's set starts with Hannah. You might remember Hannah, beloved wife of Elkanah. She's not able to have children, and so she cries out to God for a child. And in due course, God answers her prayer, and little Samuel is born. She cares for him during his early years at home, but once he is weaned, which in those days and in that culture would have been aged about four or five, at that young age, she takes him up to Shiloh and she entrusts his upbringing now to Eli, amazingly. But that's what she does. And he, she wants him to grow up to learn how to do the kind of work that Eli is doing. It's her way in those ancient times of saying thank you to God for this, her first child. But then, we meet Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. I almost feel like <laughs> I want this to be a pantomime and they come on and, and everybody starts booing <laughs> because these two are a really bad lot. They are cheating people, basically. They're dishonouring God and they're, they're robbing, they're cheating people. Roughly the idea, when people came to, to offer a sacrifice, the idea was meant to be that um, a third of it would be for the family who'd brought the offering, and they would have a bit of a, a feast, a bit of a party, a celebration with that. And a third of it was meant to go to the uh, priest as a gift, because the priest had no other job to uh, earn a living. And a third of it, especially the fat, was meant to be totally burned up so that the smoke would rise to heaven, as it were, like a, a fragrant, a symbolic fragrant offering to God. That's what was supposed to happen. But Hophni and Phinehas were just demanding the whole lot before anything was cooked or burned or anything. They wanted the lot for themselves. They were basically demanding meat with menaces, and that's some of what we heard in, in our reading just now. And a, a few verses before the reading started, we hear that they were sleeping with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So we are right into this practice of temple prostitution here, which is a million miles away from the Ten Commandments, which they already had. They much preferred the practices of, of, of these other countries round about. They much preferred that to the idea of, you shall not commit adultery. You have to be faithful to your husband or your wife. They've set that aside long ago. They're just utterly disrespecting God. 
Their religious worship by now had become some sort of ritual, but it was very much just an external kind of ritual process. And it certainly was not about honouring God or caring for people. They had completely compromised with the cultures all around them. So what does Eli do about this? He tells them off. It is a source of sorrow to him and he does tell them off. But that's all he does. As judge and as priest, he was responsible for the whole of God's people, not just for his immediate family. And he really should have, uh, should have sacked these two men, sons or no, however difficult that might have been. But no. He just colludes with them. He just goes along with it. He knows that the sacrificial meat has been stolen. God has been dishonoured. People have been robbed. But Eli... We heard in the reading just now, Eli just tucks into the best bits of dinner, the best bits of the stolen meat, along with the rest of them. It is a heartbreaking story, and this is why God is so angry in that reading that Jeanette read to us just now. These men have completely forgotten, completely forgotten, that their faith is supposed to be about a relationship with the living God. It was never meant to be about empty rituals, certainly not about thieving. It was always meant to be about a relationship with the living God. From Abraham onwards, God had promised again and again and again, I will be your God and you will be my people. It was always, always, meant to be about this beautiful relationship. But no, these men now have turned their backs on the God who loves them, and they've just gone along with what everybody else in the world around is doing. It is a sad story, but there is hope. There is hope. Did you notice in the reading, God says, I will, I will, I will, Raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. So it does seem that Eli did a better job of raising little Samuel. He taught Samuel to listen, to recognise the voice of God, to listen to the voice of God and to obey God. Those are the values that Samuel grew up with and he grows up to lead the people well, uh, well, to be a good shepherd and to bring them back to the living God. Eli is actually given the, um, the privilege in the long run of being part of the purposes of God. In spite of everything that had gone before, he really is, our God really is, the God of the second chance. That's the story, that's the context in which it was set, that's the story that our reading is part of. But that brings us to us, sitting here in church today. What about us, as followers of Jesus, and as, as church together? Because we face, perhaps not dramatic issues in the same sort of way that Eli and Hophni and Phinehas did, but we do face 
in principle, some very similar issues. How might we react to the prevailing culture around us in the Western world? Very different, but nevertheless the same question. How might we react to the prevailing culture in the world around us? Over the centuries, I'm not going to give you a history lesson, don't worry, but over the centuries, the church has tended to react in one of two ways. First of all, we can say, well, there's just not going to be any change. I'm going to put my foot down. That's it. Nothing can change in my world, and certainly nothing's going to change in the, the world of the church that I belong to. My goodness gracious me. The church has done that so often down the centuries. And the big, big example of that is the use of Latin. In the early days of the church, it was brilliant to have Latin because nearly everybody spoke Latin all around the Roman Empire and that made it possible for the good news of Jesus to spread really quickly. But we know that things didn't stay like that. There was the fall of the Roman Empire and the world became a very, very different place. It got to the point where very few, uh, very few people spoke Latin anymore, except for some of the priests in, in, in the church. They couldn't even read the Bible for themselves because everything to do with church, to do with the good news of Jesus, it was all in Latin and people could no longer understand what it was all about. The message came very close to being lost. That's why we needed a Reformation. And Barry is going to tell the Wednesday Friendly all about the Reformation in a few weeks' time. I shall look forward to that. Things were changed so that there was the Bible in people's language again. It worked well to start with. But then they said, worked okay? Not going to change it. Now, I'm going to ask my two beautiful assistants at this point, please, <laughs> if you would, with great care, bring down the easel with the picture on it. Choir, you might just want to shuffle up, maybe sit on the front row or the second row for a minute, just to see where the easel lands up. <laughs> just step on your glasses. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Just so people at the back can see it, maybe we need it about here, which is why I think we turn it round to face. Okay, and he's going right above there. You don't have to do it just as they It's very fragile, so if you lift it back up, <laughs> that's okay, that's fine. Thank you, that's lovely. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, we will back up. If you can't see the details of this at the moment, please, please don't worry. You can come and have a closer look at it later. This is, um, I, I love this picture. It's a historic um, item. It's nearly 100 years old. It was given to me, I'm going to tip it ever so slightly. Um, it was given to me about 20 years ago by a lady in her 60s who was about to get married for the first time. So she was having a grand sort out, clear out of all her stuff. Uh, so that they could amalgamate their two households. Um, and she gave this um, to me. Now, I would not use this as a visual aid for children. Um, it was used by this, um, this lady's father, who had been a Scripture Union children's worker 
in the 1920s. So it's nearly 100 years old and it's beginning to fall to bits. It's getting to be a little bit fragile, which is why I'm being a bit careful with it. Um, he took this round the country um, on beach missions and he was like Messy Church on holiday, really, on, on the beach. So he'd have, he'd have this on the beach. I saw a photograph of him in his striped blazer and his um, straw boater. Um, and I've seen some of the letters that children wrote to him afterwards saying that they had welcomed the Lord Jesus into their lives. That's the story that he was telling. So over here, if I open this little flap very carefully, the green can drop off. There is a picture of Jesus as the light of the world, a very Victorian-looking picture now. But Jesus as the light of the world, knocking on the door of someone's life. So the house represents our life. And at the bottom here, there's the words from the book of Revelation. Uh, Jesus saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. This is before modern translations of the Bible had been written, so it's in the old language. The message is still the same. Jesus is knocking on the door of all our lives, and it's up to us. The choice is ours if we will welcome him into our lives. And then if we look closely, I only discovered this after a bit, there are little clips by all the wounds, and Jesus is knocking on the door of each room, each room in the house. I won't do all of them, but just to give you the idea. Wonderful, <coughs> oh, very cleverly done. Oh yeah, I really like it. It's great fun to play with. Jesus is knocking on the door of each room. In other words, he's saying, will you give me all of your life? So as life moves on and life changes and circumstances change, it's like, you know, will you welcome me into the world of your, your marriage, your family, your new home, your later life, all the different aspects of life as it unfolds. Jesus is saying, will you welcome me into the fullness of your life? That's the message. And as I say, this was used around about 100 years ago. And lots of children um, met the Lord Jesus through, um, through visual aids like this. But I wouldn't use this today. And Scripture Union certainly wouldn't use this today. Um, our houses don't really look like this anymore. And um, it's written in old-fashioned language. And the picture of Jesus, meaningful though it is, it's a very Victorian-looking picture, isn't it? Up here, I only noticed this the other day. See, there's a map on the wall of the schoolroom. <laughs> Do you remember how um, in the days of the British Empire, all the countries of the empire were coloured pink, weren't they? Well, on this one, the whole world is coloured pink. <laughs> so what, what's going on there? I have no idea. But wonder. Maybe it's just the easiest thing to do. We'll give them the benefit of the doubt. We wouldn't use this anymore, fascinating though it is, because we can already see that, um, we can see the kind of misty overlay that's beginning to obscure the message. Um, it's the misty overlay of a past culture, isn't it, really, that is fading away. And it begins to make the message a bit fuzzy. You've probably heard the saying before that the church is only ever one generation away from extinction. 
And I think that's a good thought for us to bear in mind. The church is only ever one generation away from extinction. Our message about Jesus never changes. But just digging in our heels, like the church has so often done in the past, I mean, you know, the church around the world, all of us together, just digging in our heels and saying, nothing's ever going to change. It worked in the past, so it's going to work today and it's going to work tomorrow. No change. It never works. They found that in the Middle Ages with Latin. We can see it in this picture here. Change of, some, of the right sort, the right sort of change, really does matter. So... What's the second thing, the second way that we might react to the changing world around us? Well, the second way is to just kind of go with the flow and drift along. That's like Hophni and Phinehas, really. That's what they were doing. And maybe today we might go for a mix and match sort of religion. Uh, or we might decide to be spiritual rather than religious. Or to say... I'll be a Christian, yes, unless I find something that I like better. But keep that thought in the back of my mind. Well, yes, we should listen to other ideas and, and we should be reflective. That's right and proper. But what Jesus people are all about is a relationship with the living God, which Jesus makes possible. The Bible often likens this relationship to a betrothal, a betrothal between God and his people, where each is expected to be faithful one to the other. It's all about that beautiful relationship, never meant to be about ritual. So if it's meant to be about a relationship with the living God through the Lord Jesus, Will we drift along with the cultural assumptions of the world around us? Just ever so quickly, in the middle of that reading, which which you just now, um, you might have noticed that God said, "Those who honour me, I will honour." Hands up who remembers the film *Chariots of Fire*? Yeah, quite quite a few hands down. <laughs> it's easy that's doing this to me. Um, you might remember that the runner, Eric Liddell, who was a Christian, and he was requ required to run a race in the Olympics um, on a Sunday. And he really felt that this was dishonouring to God. He wanted to be obedient to the Ten Commandments and, and not, not use the Sabbath day in that way, because for him, running was work. And he would not run his race on a Sunday when it finally emerged that's what he was going to have to do. The pressure, the, the cultural and social pressure that he was put under was enormous, wasn't it? Um, there was the members of the royal family, members of the government, the Olympic International Committee. They were all pressurising him to try and make him run this race on a Sunday. And he really, really um, found it costly to, to stand his ground and say no, because he was made to feel like he was letting his country down. He said, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So somebody else runs the race and he's very sad. But he does then get to run another race. And those of you who saw the film, if you remember, just before, he's, he's about to set off, just before the race starts, 
Another athlete comes over with a little uh, piece of paper, looks at the paper just before he sets off, and it's a quote from that um, verse that Jeanette read to us just now, where God says, those who honour me, I will honour. And so he takes heart from that, off he goes, runs the race, he wins the race, and he has that honour. He goes off to be a missionary in China. Um, oh, there isn't time to tell you all that story. There's a statue to him somewhere in China. Um, ask me about that later if you want to know about that. Those who honour me, I will honour, says God. So, <coughs> stuff that takes our eyes off Jesus, maybe that's something for us all to just go away and think about. Because I want to ask us finally, how might we avoid falling into either of, the, of those two extremes, the, the same, no change, or the just drifting along, going with the current? And it's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult. <coughs> These are choppy waters to navigate. Ever so briefly, I want to introduce you to an old friend of mine, a lady called <coughs> Winnie Pollard. Winnie was an elderly lady in the church where I served as a curate. This was about 15 years ago. And Winnie was by then already in her 80s. She was a lovely lady who had a ministry of encouragement. The church we were in um, had been founded in 1906 and Winnie's parents had been uh, founder members of that church. Winnie was taken there as a babe in arms and she had never been part of any other church. She'd always been in St Paul's. During the Second World War, she was on fire watch duty um, on the roof of the church. She had to knock fire <laughs> off the roof so that they didn't damage the building. It is an enormous building with steeply, um, steeply pitched roof. How on earth that worked out in practice, I can't imagine. If we think we have a commitment to preserving our church buildings, I tell you, we ain't got nothing on Winnie Pollard. How she did this, I do not know. But that's the sort of person that she was. Uh, when I knew her, she, um, she, she loved the fact that there were so many young families in that church. She really rejoiced in that. And she herself used to organise an evening service in the sheltered housing where she lived. And she got some of those young adults to come and help her with that. It didn't really take off terribly well, which was a great sadness. But it didn't, she didn't let it get her down because she kept her eyes fixed on Jesus. And she kept moving forward and she kept looking for ways, other ways, of sharing Jesus with the world around her. One day, um, I remember she said to our vicar, Mike, don't worry about what you think I might want in church. You focus on what will get the young people into church. She had this lovely ministry of encouragement that kept us all going kept us all moving forward, kept everyone in good heart. And I spent many a happy half hour sitting with Winnie Pollard over a cup of tea and, and listening to her stories. Winnie kept her eyes fixed on Jesus, and I think that's the key. It's all about being rooted in Jesus. Winnie lived through so many changes right through the 20th century. The world around her changed dramatically, but she was rooted in Jesus and she was grounded in the scriptures. And I would suggest today that this is where we can find life's greatest fulfillment. In God who says to you and to me, I made you, 
I love you. You are precious to me. Here is our security deep inside. This is what will hold us steady, I believe, in the face of change all around us. This is what will stop us just going with the flow, being rooted in Jesus. The Bible says that, I'll quote this, this is from the book of Hebrews, we have this hope in Jesus as the anchor for our souls, the anchor for our souls, firm and secure. So if we feel tossed about by the changes in the world around us, if we're tempted to dig in our heels and say, nothing's going to change, I'm going to just do things like I've always done them and nothing's ever going to change in my church, my goodness gracious me. Let's remember the words of scripture, precious words, you'll know this. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Jesus never changes. He is the anchor that will hold us steady. So, if we're tempted to go with the flow of things around us, let's grab that anchor, throw it out to secure it, and keep our eyes fixed on Jesus all over again. He's the one who will set us back on course and stop us from just drifting off. Remember, he is the God of the second chance. Coming to a close now, may we just bow our heads for a brief moment of quiet and, and, and prayer. And let's allow these words from St Paul to sink into our hearts. St Paul speaks of the steadfastness of your faith in Christ that leaning of the entire human personality on him in absolute trust and confidence in his wisdom, power and goodness. Have the roots of your being firmly and deeply planted in him, fixed and founded in him, being continually built up in him, becoming increasingly more confirmed and established in the faith, abounding and overflowing in it with thanksgiving. So, come Lord Jesus, be our anchor always. Amen.